0: Our next reading comes from the book of Revelation. Uh, We'll be reading from the third chapter, verses 14 through 22, and we are drawing to a close uh, this morning our study of the letters addressed to the churches of Asia Minor, the Roman province of Asia uh, in the early church. John of Patmos is exiled on this little island in the Aegean Sea, and he has a vision of the risen Christ. And Christ directs him to send letters to seven principal churches in Asia Minor. And there's a message for each of those churches that apply to all of the churches. Uh, He may talk to Ephesus about love, but that applies to Sardis and Philadelphia and others, and their letters apply to the others. So this was a circular letters that went around to all of these churches, and they come down through the ages to us as well. We dare to believe that what we are finding here are clues and hints and direct commands as to what we are to be if we live up to the expectance, expectations of Jesus Christ for his church. So this is the last letter, and as you will hear, probably the sternest, the harshest of all of them. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write... The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, and poor, blind and naked therefore I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see I reprove and discipline those whom I love be earnest therefore and repent listen I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what does Jesus expect of the church? The church universal, the church in every place, the church here in Greensboro that we're broadcasting from this morning. We all have expectations for what the church of Jesus Christ should be and do. It doesn't matter who we are, where we are on the political spectrum, the denominational scale. The church belongs to Jesus Christ, it is his bride. He is the head of this body that bears his name. So what Jesus thinks and what Jesus expects far outweighs what the preachers think or the congregational members think, even in a survey where they may speak as a majority, what the government expects, what the community expects. What does Jesus expect? That has to be our primary motivation and desire to please Jesus. And so in these letters, We saw first of all in the letter to Ephesus that uh, God's people are to love passionately and fervently. That matters most of all. It's the first in terms of when it was written. It's the first in terms of its importance as a trait for Christians. We are also told in the letter to Smyrna that if called upon to do so, we are to suffer faithfully and courageously when we stand with and for Jesus Christ. We are to be a people who are characterized by the truth, committed to telling the truth, sharing the truth, speaking the truth to authorities, to our neighbors, even to ourselves. We're to be a community marked by holiness. That is to say, we're set aside. That's the message to the letter at Thyatira. We are to be characterized by vitality and by vigilance as a congregation And last time together, we looked at the letter to the church at Philadelphia. We are to be marked by trustworthiness. Can Christ count on us to do as he expects, to live in obedience and in faith? Now, Jesus' praise for this church in Philadelphia last time was effusive, He praises the church of Philadelphia as he does no other. There are no words of condemnation or judgment or even of warning in this letter, but words of praise and affirmation. Maybe that was all that was needed in that instance. After completing the sermon, I read later that of all the seven churches of Asia Minor that received these letters, it is... The city, the ancient city of Philadelphia, now called al which has the strongest Christian presence of any of the other uh, congreg- uh, any of the other cities in this now predominantly Muslim culture. I guess that shouldn't surprise us, surprise us, given the trustworthiness of the lives of the members of that congregation. At any rate, it would have been desirable perhaps to close this series by looking at the church at Philadelphia and those praiseworthy uh, affirmations that Jesus speaks of them and hopefully apply them to us as we seek to be faithful in our time but maybe it's providential that that's not the last letter maybe it's providential that you and I as members of this or other churches consider these harsh words Sometimes we need those. We need Jesus to be very blunt and direct with us. People need this. Churches need this. Children need this. People respond differently to various stimuli. We know it's true with children. Uh, We had four children, two of them. One you could look at cross-eyed and she would bend to your will, whatever it was. But the other would argue with fence posts. The only way to get through to her was threaten You know grounding or some removing some privilege or something one needed that the other didn't what about us what will it take for Jesus to strengthen and encourage and equip us to live up to his expectations of us Now, many people take offense I'm sure there were people in Laodicea that took offense at this letter directed to them after all these are the harshest sternest words that Jesus speaks We may not appreciate just how rough they are because in our English translations of these letters, it's not that we speak in politically correct, but maybe ecclesiastically correct language. We want to be true to the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that we learned about in Sunday school, but these are harsh words, very blunt. In Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase of the New Testament, This is his way of rendering verses 15 through 18 in the message. I know you inside and out, and I find little to my liking. You're not cold, you're not hot. Far better to be either cold or hot, but you're stale, you're stagnant. You make me want to vomit. You brag, I'm rich, I've got it made. I need nothing from anyone. Oblivious that you are in fact A pitiful blind beggar threadbare and homeless now why such blunt words reserved for Laodicea and the church there what was it about this church that so disappointed and angered and nauseated our Lord what was it about this church that indicated it had few if any redeeming values to begin with Laodicea was a church and a community of great wealth, great wealth of all the cities we've looked at thus far. It was strategically located so that it was a center for commerce and business. Laodicea was a a political, a financial, and a commercial center, uh, center of great significance in that part of the world then. So wealthy was this community that when their city was destroyed by an earthquake, and we've seen how this happened both in Philadelphia and in Sardis, they too were uh, almost destroyed by this massive earthquake that had occurred early uh, after the resurrection of the Lord. But this community was so well healed, if you will, that they didn't ask anything from Rome in the rebuilding of their city. They had sufficient resources themselves to reconstruct their city. They were wealthy. They considered themselves among the enviable rich people of the world. And their lifestyle of prosperity was the envy of that part of the world. But don't we know that God's view of true wealth is at odds with the way we human beings often assess wealth. They saw themselves as the enviable rich. But when Jesus looks at these congregants, he says they are the wretched and the pitiable poor. Many a person who has a lot of cash in the bank or an impressive stock portfolio is in effect spiritually bankrupt. It was so then, it is so today. So here are people and a church basking in their own self-sufficiency and independence Their presumed wealth, they had no need of anyone or anything, thank you. And their false sense of pride and affluence was actually blinding them to the poverty of their own situation. Verse 18 speaks of a salve that they used to anoint their eyes. This was one of the distinguishing features of Laodicea as well. There were nearby manufactured these powders called Phrygian powders that were used to make this salve that had curative powers for some eye conditions. Even Aristotle mentions these powders, this salve in some of his writings. And so of all people, the Laodiceans thought that they could see clearly and accurately. And yet Jesus is saying, you think you can see? You're actually blind to your own condition. Spiritually bankrupt, if you will. The Laodiceans also prided themselves of being very well clothed. Why is that mentioned here? Because Laodicea was a thriving woolen and linen center. They created and manufactured there this special kind of woolen fabric that was the envy of that part of the world, black and luxurious. So the garment trade flourished there as it flourished here at one point. And Jesus says while these while they see themselves as well-dressed what they don't realize that they are shamefully naked and exposed to other people we like to say the king had no clo- had no clothes on but Jesus would say that the church in Laodicea had no clothes on either they were actually naked before him I'm not sure we in the West can fully appreciate how much of an insult this was in Eastern culture then and now. In that part of the world, men and women covered their bodies as much as they possibly could, not simply because not because they felt ashamed because of the flesh, but rather because they had such respect for the flesh that it shouldn't be shown to other people. And so to be standing naked before other people, especially those of the opposite sex was about the most shameful thing that could happen to you this is why it was so offensive several years ago if you remember this some of our troops in Iraq captured prisoners and had them in the Abu Ghraib prison if you remember those days and what they uh, required these men to do was strip down naked and walk in front of and expose themselves to American officers female officers included far beneath the principles and the practices of this country throughout its history so it was an offense to the whole world it was an offense also to those of us in America at any rate here the seasons see themselves as prosperous and well clothed in their sartorial splendor but Jesus has a different diagnosis of them when he looks at them and so they receive his sternest words of rebu- rebuke. But the only good thing going for the church at Laodicea is that Jesus still loves them. He's still concerned about them. He's still calling them to repent. They're experiencing what William Barclay refers to as love's chastisement, that God disciplines those whom he loves like a good parent disciplines. It's out of love. As difficult as it may be, I'm in the midst of trying to finish up Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime, about growing up in South Africa. And it's remarkable how his mother practiced tough love with him. And she said, it's because I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't be concerned. But I'd rather discipline you now than you be later disciplined by the police because of your actions. So Jesus loves this church enough to criticize them, enough to rebuke them, and calls for them to be genuine in their repentance. The chief complaint, interestingly enough, of the church in Laodicea, that it was just apathetic, lethargic, insipid. It was neither hot nor cold. Basically, the people just didn't care that much. And so lethargy and apathy and indifference reigned in this congregation. And Jesus was upset. Interestingly enough, it seems that Jesus is more concerned about those who are apathetic than to those who just outright reject him or his way. Better to be hot or cold, he says, than to be what you are just lukewarm, lazy, and lethargic. I feel that way sometimes about my own life, about the churches where I've served. Maybe you feel that way sometimes. I find it easier sometimes to deal with someone who doesn't claim belief than to someone who claims to believe. And yet there's no noticeable difference in the life of that person because of Jesus Christ. Later on in the 19th chapter. John will say that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Words that Handel will put into that magnificent uh, piece of music at Christmas. King and Lord. And we dare not insult this King if we honor him only when we're feeling like it, if we obey him only when it suits our fancy. And it's consistent with our time and our purposes ourselves. All Christians in every age and in every congregation have to make a critical decision. It has to do with whether you're going to open that door that he's knocking on. Are you going to allow Jesus to come in and govern your life? To be your Lord? To be the King whom you serve and before whom you bow? If you make the decision to let him in, He's not gonna take control of part of your life. He's going to demand all of your life. He's going to be asking to be in control of your politics. We're in a political season. Are you measuring how you judge politicians on the basis of what God expects of us? Are you measuring your support and your decisions on the basis of what serves you best and people who are like you? Are you going to listen to God? Or to your peers or to your party when it comes to politics? Is Jesus the king of your financial life? Look at how you spend your money, where you invest your time and energies. Is it serving God and serving others or is it serving self? What about your family life? Is Jesus king? Is he Lord or is he not? Are you hot or cold? Surely you know that the Christian church in America is in decline. It has been for a number of years now, across nearly every denomination. Fewer people claiming to be Christian, fewer people uniting with Christian churches. But in the midst of all of this, there's one religious group that's growing quite rapidly. You know what it is? It's the Muslims. There are more Muslims in the United States now than there are Presbyterians and we had quite a head start in that regard. Why is this so? I personally think it's so because Islam means submission. And I believe that Muslims sometimes are much more submissive to Allah and to his prophet Muhammad than Christians are to God and to his son Jesus Christ. These letters to the seven churches are not easy to listen to. Their messages are not easy to heed either. In working on them, sometimes I felt God's pleasure and sometimes I have felt God's rebuke. Both of me and the congregation I serve. You may not like what I'm about to say, but I think it's true. It seems to me that this congregation, First Presbyterian in Greensboro, borough, has more in common with the church of Laodicea than with any other, other churches. These people are like us. They could walk through these doors, dressed fine, be generous, be giving, and they would feel right at home. That's how we would see them. They look like us. But what would Jesus see? in them or in us have we submitted to this man we call king and lord john stott in his exposition of uh, this early part of revelation writes as follows and i agree with him perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the church at the beginning of the 21st century than this letter It describes vividly the respectable, nominal, rather sentimental, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. Now why am I taking the time to say this? I'm just a transitional pastor and interim. That's one of the reasons I'm saying this. I think it's my job to be totally honest with you about what I see, and I see some trends in this congregation that are disturbing that I hope we can reverse. I'd love to see us reverse them before our new leadership comes in soon. But if not, that will be the task that falls to him or to her. We made efforts last fall to have a revival As one of the Matthew 25 congregations in our denomination to work on revitalization of this church, rediscover our vitality, we were beginning to make a little headway in some areas and then the COVID-19 came on us and dealt a body blow to much of what we're doing in the church in terms of worship, in terms of education, though our education has been remarkable how we've stayed with it. In terms of our fellowship together, we can't get together. In terms of our generosity and discipline support of the church, although I have to say that's been remarkable too. Our people have responded in their giving, and that's admirable. But I'm more concerned about what we're going to look like spiritually when we finally come out on the other side of this pandemic. Are we going to be recommitted to this church that we've missed? Are we going to be reengaged in its education, its worship It's work in this community and far beyond this community. No doubt you're going to be blessed with an outstanding pastor rather soon. Within the coming months, no doubt. But that pastor can't do it by himself or herself. It's going to take a committed congregation. People who are all in or sold out or however you want to express it because Jesus Christ cannot be marginally important. If Jesus is who he says he is and whom the church declares him to be, then Jesus Christ is the most important thing in our lives and can never be moderately important. All important or unimportant, that's the only two choices. I'm compelled to tell you this, not simply because it's my job as an interim, but also because I don't want to follow in the footsteps of a man called Archippus. Now, i had never heard of Archippus. So i paid any attention to him before I began this study. But if you open to the closing verses of the book of Colossians, you'll read there that Paul tells Archippus in Laodicea to complete the task that the Lord has given to him. Well, no one pretty much knew who Archippus was just out of the blue. That's the only thing we know in the scriptures about him, but there was a work that people discovered in the third century called the Apostolic Constitutions and it referred to this Archippus as the first bishop of the church in Laodicea. But he didn't complete his task. What didn't he do? Did he not share truthfully the condition of the church in Laodicea did he measure his words so carefully that they thought they were getting by perfectly fine thank you given their wealth and prosperity and good dress so I don't want to be tempted just just to tell you what you need to hear or want to hear because we can't do that as clergy our charge is to tell you what we believe through the Spirit that you need to hear that all of us need to hear as unpleasant as it may be sometimes But let me close with good news the good news is that Jesus is standing in the door knocking and he wants to come in he desires to come in and take charge not only of us individually but the whole operation of the church what are we doing in obedience to Jesus Christ will we have passion Will our presence be felt in worship and study and fellowship? Will our prayers continue for the church and for its future and for the new pastor that will soon be arriving? He'll have a great continuing staff to work with. She will have a lot of support. But it can't depend upon the pastors or the staff. It has to be upon all of us together, the entire congregation. And if we open that door and allow him in, not only will we be blessed in the process, but this church will continue to be a blessing to all those around us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.